Well, there once was a man who loved to play golf, but he had a problem. His eyesight was terrible, and it was getting worse. He could still hit the ball, but he was having a tough time seeing where it went. He was being, spending way too much time searching for it in the fairway grass. One day, he mentioned to the golf pro his problem. This golf pro had just talked to a gentleman who had gotten up there in age and had sort of outlived his former partners. But this fellow could still play, and he had 20-20 vision, which would be great for the younger man. And so the golf pro, he put the two men together, the younger man with the good health and the older man with the perfect eyesight. They seemed to be an excellent fit. Well, on the first tee, the younger guy with the poor vision, he drove his ball a mile. It was a beautiful shot right down the middle. But as soon as he hit it, he shook his head. He was exasperated. He, he turned to his partner. He says, I'm so sorry. I missed it the moment it left my club. I have no idea where that ball went. Well, his friend chimed in. He says, oh, don't worry. He says, I see it. I see it right now. Pointed his finger down. There it is right down there. Well, the older man, he hit his shot. And so the two men went down the fairway to hit their second shots. Of course, the younger man, he couldn't find his ball. They looked. They looked. Finally, he yelled at his new partner, I thought you said you saw my ball. The elderly fellow replied, I did, but now I don't remember where it was. <laughs> and the moral of the story is, good vision doesn't matter if you got a bad memory. And this was a problem with the Corinthian Christians. They had forgotten important lessons that they should have remembered. You see, the church at Corinth had a bad memory. Throughout history, God had taught his people vital principles. The Corinthians had been given numerous examples, but they had forgotten the lessons learned, and they were repeating the same mistakes as their forefathers. This is why in chapter 10, Paul takes this church on a stroll down memory lane. He recounts the history of the Hebrews as examples to the church. Verse 1, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. Now, when the Hebrews exited Egypt, they were followed by a cloud by day, which turned into a pillar of fire by night. Whenever this cloud stopped, the people camped. The cloud would rest over the Holy of Holies there in the tabernacle. This fiery column of smoke was God's glory among his people. This was what they were called to pursue, to seek after his glory. The Hebrews called it the Shekinah, or that which dwells and settles. It was God settling in among his people. And it must have been quite a sight. Artists envisioned it as a pillar that spread out like an umbrella over the camp. Like a heavenly blast, the pillar exploded at the top and covered the tribes with a mushroom cloud. It seems the psalmist was referring to this cloud in Psalm 121 when he said, Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. 
Imagine traveling through the hot sands of the wilderness under that blistering sun. You know, the Sinai Peninsula is not noted for its towering oaks. There's no such thing as shade trees. The tallest vegetation are shrubs and sagebrush. And so how do you keep several million people from overheating? Well, God's answer was the cloud. As long as they stayed in His presence, as long as they followed His will, they stayed cool. God's will, His presence was the cool place to be. And God is still the cool place to be. If you want to be cool, at least it was cool in my day. Today it's epic or tight or sick or dope. Well, if you want to be in a desirable, refreshing, envious place, then walk in God's will. Seek after His glory. Live under His jurisdiction. Live in His neighborhood. Seek after His presence. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians, don't forget, it's cool to walk with God. It's where you want to be. In this chapter, Paul is going to talk about temptation coming from three sources. The lust of the flesh, the lure of the world, the lies of the devil. And Satan's first lie is this. Oh, it's not cool to live for Jesus. Hey, to the contrary, it is the coolest thing to do. It is shade from the heat. It is shelter in the night. Living under God's glory, it's cool. Well, they were under the cloud and they passed through the sea. And I don't care how many times I watch the Ten Commandments. I always get goosebumps when Moses Heston raises his rod and that sea rolls back before Israel's astonished eyes. I mean, it's a moving scene. Imagine if you had been there. It took faith to climb down from the bank into that seabed. I'm sure you'd have one eye on the ground in front of you, but you'd have another eye on those columns of water by your side. How could the ground be so dry? How could those columns be so strong? How could those curtains of water, will they hold or will they let loose? It took faith. Now, I realize the Hebrews had no other choice. The Pharaoh had had a change of heart. The pillar of fire was holding him at bay. But crossing the Red Sea wasn't as easy as you might think. You had to believe that God was for you, that God would get you through. And that's when Paul brings it all home to these Corinthians. He writes, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It was like a baptism. It's like what you and I have experienced when we were baptized. Now here's the first implication that what happened to Israel historically is a type or an analogy of what happens to us spiritually. In the cloud and in the sea, the Hebrews were baptized, or they were initiated into Moses. In being baptized, they took a new identity. They were no longer slaves of Egypt, but now followers of Moses. And this is what happens to us as Christians when we're baptized. We take a new identity. We leave behind our Egypt. We renounce this world as our home, and we become followers of a new deliverer. And Jesus works a miracle. He parts a sea of forgiveness. 
When the Hebrews stepped off the bank and into that supernatural crosswalk, they were dying to their past life. This was a new experience for them. They would never go back. They were crossing over. But it took faith. And it takes faith for us to follow Jesus. For we too embrace a new identity. We die to ourselves and to our past. We're no longer slaves to sin. But we emerge a new people under new management. In Christ there is now a vast sea between your past and your future. Your Egypt and your promised land. And there's no going back. There's no need. Just as there was no reason for the Hebrews to go back to Egypt, for God would provide everything they needed. Verse 3 tells us, they all ate the same spiritual food. You remember how God satisfied the Hebrews' hunger in the wilderness. I mean, for 40 years, He supplied them with the wonder bread, the manna, supernatural food. Psalm 78 verse 25 calls it angel's food. It was the first angel food cake. Whenever I go to the grocery store these days, I always buy one of those angel food cake in, the, in a little pan. I keep it in the kitchen on the counter for my grandkids. And whenever the grandkids come over, whenever they want, we go into the kitchen, I pop the top on that cake, and they reach their hands down and they just grab out a big chunk of angel food cake. And they feast on it all the time. They're at G-Daddy's house. It's great. And G-Daddy gets a bite too. It's G-Daddy's treat. And this was God's treat for his kids. Every morning, the people walked out of their tent. And there on the ground was that day's groceries. It was a miracle. I'm sure the manna was tasty enough. But imagine the nutrients packed into a manna wafer. This was food from God. Trust me, it had all the USDA daily requirements. And in the same way, Jesus provides his followers today with spiritual food to eat. Remember, Jesus compared himself to the manna. In John chapter 6, Jesus spoke, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. It's fellowship with Jesus that satisfies our deepest needs. You know, for the new year, some people, they eat black-eyed peas and collard greens. Well, Jesus is better than black-eyed peas and collard greens. If you want real nutrition, don't just settle for soul food. Jesus Christ is food for your soul. This year, why don't you make a point of getting into His Word? Why don't you seek to know Him? The knowledge of Jesus is faith food. It's the protein that adds muscle to our faith. Well, the analogy continues, verse 4. He says, And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now twice, in Israel's wilderness wanderings, God drew water from the rock to quench the thirst of His people. The first time, Moses was told to strike the rock. He did so, and water gushed out. The second time, God told Moses to speak to the rock. But at the time, Moses was angry with these Hebrews. He was fed up. They had been complaining. They had been grumbling. And because Moses was mad at the people, he disobeyed God. He misrepresented God. Rather than speak to the rock as God had told him, he got angry and he struck the rock a second time. 
And for this one act of defiance, God barred Moses from the promised land. He would look on, but he didn't get in. Now we read of Moses' punishment and we're left to wonder, is God being excessive? I mean, does this punishment really fit the crime? It seems so severe. That is, until we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. For here the picture clears up. Paul tells us that the rock in the wilderness was a type of Christ. Apparently, quenching the thirst of a few million folks turns out to have been a peripheral issue. God's main objective was to paint a picture of the Christ. Jesus had to be struck once, but once on the cross. Now, all we have to do is speak to the rock. And God pours out waters of spiritual refreshment into our soul. But you see, Moses blew the analogy. He misrepresented God, and thus he had to be punished. Thankfully, God delivered this good news in other ways. In John chapter 4, Jesus told the woman at the well, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus offers us an endless source of refreshment, bottomless blessings, everlasting refills. The purchase was made on the cross. Now all we have to do is to ask the Lord to fill us and drink deeply. This year, why don't you stop filling up on the junk food this world offers and feed on the manna that comes from heaven. Stop drowning yourself in distilled spirits and let the Holy Spirit slake your thirst. Jesus is the ultimate thirst quencher. You see, these Hebrews, they were such a blessed people. They had passed through the sea. They lived under the cloud. They ate supernatural food. They drank life-giving water. Yet all their experiences didn't translate into holy living and an enduring faith. It didn't guarantee for them a successful finish. Verse 5 tells us, But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And here is the understatement of all understatements. Most of them God was not well pleased. How about all but two? Joshua and Caleb. They were the only ones to have faith. A couple of million Hebrews died in the wilderness. Their bodies littered across the desert floor because of their unbelief. And Paul's point is this. A good beginning doesn't ensure a good ending. For like the Hebrews of old, the Corinthians were a blessed bunch of people. They too had been delivered from sin and from a former life. They had a new identity in Christ. Jesus had satisfied their spiritual hunger and thirst. Yet that didn't mean that they wouldn't die in the desert if they grew arrogant. If they stopped trusting and following and needing and depending on Jesus. And the same is true for us. You see, it's not how we start that matters most, but how we finish. Last Sunday, we had a memorial service for our good friend, Bonnie Basher. Bonnie went to be with Jesus back in December. And when Rhonda sent to me Bonnie's obituary... I read it, and I was struck by an unusual phrase. It said, Bonnie died loving the Lord. She 
didn't just love him for a time. She just didn't love him for a little while. Her Christianity wasn't just a passing fancy. Bonnie's passion for Jesus wasn't just a phase she was going through. No, she made it across the finish line. She died loving Jesus. That's how I want to die. Paul warns these Corinthians and us that no amount of past piety will assure a victorious faith and a victorious finish. you got to persevere and endure and stick with it. As Paul said to the Colossians, continue in your faith. The Hebrew skeletons scattered in the desert sands were proof. It's not enough just to start well, but you've got to finish. Paul continues, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And in the next few verses, Paul is going to warn these Corinthians of the danger of not finishing. And again, he uses the Hebrews in the wilderness as his example. You see, their problem was they pulled up short. They quit too soon. This past April in a collegiate track meet, the Pepsi Invitational, a University of Oregon runner appeared to have won the race. Down the final stretch, he gestured to the crowd. He coaxed, it was coaxing them to cheer. He thought a victory was in the bag. Suddenly, a Washington runner came out of his blind side and beat him at the wire. Don't let that happen to you. Spiritually, we're in a race. Don't get distracted. Don't think you can put it on cruise and coast to victory. We have got to stay vigilant. You see, the Hebrews made five mistakes that cost them. As I list them for you, why don't you jot them down? Wicked wants, wicked worship, wicked works, wicked ways, and wicked words. Their first error was wicked wants. In verse 6, Paul warns to not lust after evil things as they also lusted. You see, the Hebrews got bored with God. Rather than dive deeper into Him, they became complacent. They cultivated evil desires and they were attracted to evil things. And spiritually, if you're not moving forward, then you're sliding backwards. I like to say that Christianity is like climbing a sliding board in your socks. Hey, as long as you're going up, fine. You're you're having momentum. You're making progress. But the moment you stop, you're backsliding. There's no standing still. Realize a person gets bored with God, not because God is boring, but we get distracted. Our flesh is so feeble. We're so fickle. Our physical side is never satisfied. It's always looking for more or better or newer. That's why we have to decide to live in the Spirit, not in the flesh. To go deep into God. To trust Him to satisfy our needs. If instead we live an earthly, here and now kind of life, our eyes will wander and our heart will stray. Our lust will pull us from God's stuff, from the cool place. Hey, don't be deceived. Sin is attractive. If it wasn't attractive, it wouldn't be a temptation. 
We turn our backs on God because we think we're missing out on something this world has to offer. We need to settle it once and for all that our hearts were made with tastes that only God can satisfy. Don't give in to wicked wants. For what often follows is wicked worship. Paul says, And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And here he quotes Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. You remember the occasion. Moses was on the mountaintop meeting with God while the Hebrews grew impatient. They couldn't wait 40 days. And so they made a substitute God, a golden calf. When Moses returned with the two tablets of God's commandments, the people were partying in the worst way. They were dancing and drinking. Exodus says they rose up to play. In Hebrew, it means sex play. Here's what happens when a person lusts for evil things. He or she adopts a wicked worship to justify their wicked wants. They either water down their God or they just throw him out and start over with something new. You see, this is why a college freshman rejects Christianity in which they've been raised. It's not that the arguments of a secular university are so conclusive and so convincing that it undermines 18 years of training in three months. No, it's that the kid was bombarded with a partying lifestyle that looks so fun, that looks so free. They chose to indulge their flesh and they needed a God who would justify their choices. This is what happened to the Hebrews. It's interesting, after Moses' brother Aaron made the golden calf, he proclaimed, tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. It's interesting that in Aaron's mind, he didn't make another God. He was still worshiping the Hebrew God. He just portrayed him in a more lenient light, in a different light. And this is what's happening today. People are diluting God's commands and holiness. They're trying to refashion God. They're trying to give God a makeover, make him more inclusive. But that's wicked worship. God is who God is. God isn't some chameleon. He doesn't change colors and adopt to the flavor of the day. God created mankind and knows best how life should be lived. God desires. In fact, God demands that we adapt to Him and His will. See, the faith of the Hebrews got derailed by wicked wants and wicked worship and also wicked works. Verse 8 says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Here Paul refers to the story of Balaam. Balaam was an ancient Harry Potter. He was a wizard, a soothsayer. In Numbers chapter 22 through 25, tells the story of Balaam, and it shows the Hebrews' propensity for lust and for idols. The incident began when Balak, king of Moab, hired this oriental psychic, this wizard named Balaam, to curse the Hebrews. But every time Balaam opened his mouth to utter a curse, God saw to it that a blessing came out. Balaam was just about to be fired, lose his retainer fee. When he came up with a suggestion, God wouldn't let him curse the Hebrews, but Balak could corrupt the Hebrews. 
He told the king to send the Moabite cheerleaders. Go down to the Hooters and recruit the waitresses. And send those gals into the camp of the Hebrews to tempt them with sexual sin. God had prohibited Balaam and the Moabites from cursing the Hebrews, but that didn't mean he, could, he couldn't arrange circumstances so that they would shoot themselves in the foot. That they would allow themselves to be corrupted by their own lusts and wicked works. And the lesson for the Corinthians as well as for us is crystal clear. As much as the enemy wants to curse you, the Lord is determined to bless you. He can even turn the enemy's attempted curse into a blessing. The only way Satan can defeat us is if we let him. You see, the primary cause of our compromise is not the enemy's subtlety, but it's our own stupidity. We get drawn away by wicked works, and we fall into the devil's trap. Beware of wicked works. And also... Wicked ways. Paul writes in verse 9, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. For 40 years, God had sustained his people in the desert through supernatural means. Unable to farm, every morning they awoke to, to the wonder bread. <laughs> they just walked outside their tent and they collected rations for that day. And there was enough food for a whole nation. Imagine God catering three meals a day for three million people. You'd think the Hebrews would be grateful. Instead, they grumbled continually. They tempted Christ. They pushed the Lord's patience. And it didn't just happen once. They grumbled over and over like a child on a long drive. Dad, are we going to get there? Dad, are we going to get there? Dad, when are we going to get there? When we get there. All the incessant asking wasn't going to speed up the trip. No sooner had the Hebrews left Egypt that they started murmuring and complaining. They became disgruntled with the Lord's provision. Oh, the manna was too bland all of a sudden. Oh, how about those leeks and onions? They tasted great, that food from Egypt. And what they really wanted was the meat. They were meat and potatoes people. And so God gave them quail. The Bible says not just one day's worth or two days worth or five days worth, but a 30-day supply of quail. Numbers 11 says they ate the meat until it came out their nostrils and became loathsome to them. God said, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. But the Hebrews still didn't learn. Now that they're at the end of their 40-year ordeal, and they're still belly aching to God. As one author writes, the discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much, and everything God does for him is too little. This time, though, God brings a swift discipline. Poisonous snakes slither into the camp, and they bite those who were spreading the poison of a bad attitude. You see, wicked ways are the end result of wicked wants and wicked worship and wicked works. And then finally, Paul warns of wicked words. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. It wasn't just the ungrateful attitude they had in their hearts, but it was the disrespectful words that came out of their mouths. Hey, be careful 
of wicked words. Realize for some people, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. A sure way to heighten a desire is to put that thing just out of your reach, just beyond your grasp. We desire the forbidden fruit until we get it. A recent Gallup poll reported that 33% of Americans would like to move to another state. They think they'd be happier elsewhere. Yet when asked if it was likely that they would relocate in the next year, only 6% said extremely or very likely. 73% said there was no chance. An observer concluded, It appears that many of us would rather complain about our lot in life than actually take action to improve it. And this was the Hebrews. They could have entered a bountiful land, flowing with milk and honey, but they But that move would require faith. And through their endless complaining and grumbling, they convinced themselves that it couldn't be done. There is a Jewish tradition that says that God has a single angel that he has designated to do all his dirty work. In verse 10, Paul calls this angel the destroyer. How's that for a name? Sounds like a divine battleship. The destroyer. Here's an angel you don't want to meet in and out. You don't want to be touched by this angel. The destroyer. But the surest way to rumble with the destroyer is to grumble about God's provision. Murmuring and complaining is nothing but a lack of faith. If we really believe God is in control, we'll stop our belly aching. Well, Paul concludes his trip down memory lane in verse 11. He says, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The Corinthians needed to humble themselves. If it can happen to the Hebrews of old, it can happen to them, and it can happen to us. We too need to take heed. I'm sure you've heard it said, experience is the best teacher, but I've learned it doesn't always have to be your own experience. I mean, why keep slamming your head against the wall when you can learn from other people's mistakes? This is why Paul rehearses the history. He wants to save the Corinthians and save us from a bruise to the noggin. At the Dachau concentration camp near Munich, there is a museum of Nazi horrors. On display are photographs and relics documenting the atrocities done to the Jews. And there is a sign posted near the exit. It reads, Those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. And the same is true in the Christian life. We also need to be on guard against wicked wants, wicked worship, wicked works, wicked ways, and wicked words. For we're told in verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Hey, you stay on that high horse long enough, and you'll eventually get bucked off. Pride is a dangerous posture. It's like standing on one leg for a long time. You're eventually going to topple. You're going to fall. Reminds me of Jose Cubero, once one of Spain's most brilliant matadors. In fact, there's a sculpture of him outside a bullfighting ring in Madrid's, the Plaza of the Bulls. And notice the bull 
right behind Jose. The story goes, after thrusting his sword into the bull one last time, Cabero, the great matador, he spun around to acknowledge the adoring cheers of the crowd. What he didn't realize was that the bull was still alive. It made a final lunge, and it ran its horn right through Jose's heart. I had the picture. Pastor James said I shouldn't show it. It is ugly. But so is pride. Pride is also ugly. It's led to many a person's downfall. Remember, when you think you're invincible, you are the most vulnerable. But verse 13 offers us hope. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who would not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Humble yourself, for God helps the humble. You see, the Hebrews of old were tempted with unbelief. The Corinthians were tempted to drift away. We're tempted by compromise, but God helps us with our temptation. Based on verse 13, take note of four truths that we need to recall the next time we find ourselves in a temptation situation. First, you're not alone. You see, Paul says temptation is common to man. Everybody is at some point tested by temptation. It's been said temptation is the price for being human. Even the holiest, even the most spiritual among us are prone to temptation. And the type of temptation isn't unique to you. Don't think that you're the only person who's ever been tempted by your particular sin. Or that you alone have been besieged by such perverted thoughts. Hey, Satan's strategies don't change all that much from person to person and from age to age. He uses the same tools he always has. He's just gotten really good at his trade. You see, if we had the time and if you had the courage... To tell us about your temptation, I promise you, a whole host of people would be able to relate. You'd find that you and a lot of other people are in the same boat. We all get tempted. Second thing you should remember when you're tempted, Paul tells us that God is faithful. God doesn't get upset that we're tempted. He doesn't abandon us when we're tempted. Often, it's God who has orchestrated the temptation in the first place. When the Union Pacific Railroad ran its first line from St. Louis to California, it built a trestle bridge over a deep gorge. To assure the bridge's safety, the chief engineer parked a train of boxcars loaded with twice the normal payload on top of the bridge for two weeks. One of the workers who had labored so hard on the bridge was upset. He said, what are you trying to do, break it? The engineer replied, no, I'm showing the world that it's unbreakable. And this is why God allows us to be tempted. He showcases His ability to keep us, to sustain us. Remember, even Jesus was tempted. In fact, Luke chapter 4 verse 1 tells us, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was God's will that Jesus be tempted. The Holy Spirit led Him to be tempted. Don't ever think it's a sin or that you're outside of God's will or that you're not being led by the Spirit when you get tempted. 
The sin is not being tempted, it's yielding to the temptation. It's the giving in, not the fighting. And then third, you need to remember, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Even though temptation is inevitable, it is winnable. God is sovereign over our circumstances, and He won't allow us to be tempted beyond our tipping point. But, understand, He measures that point by factoring in His power. You see, in our own strength, all temptation would be fatal. But we have God's Spirit. We have God's Word. We certainly have God's Son. The Bible calls us overcomers in Christ. That's why when we trust in Jesus, it moves the needle on what is our tipping point. Our resistance increases. What we can handle ends up much greater. You see, one of the ways that God keeps temptation within our range of resistance is by providing us an escape. Paul puts it, with the temptation, he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful to provide us an escape hatch. Sometimes God keeps the enticement within our range of resistance by tempering the temptation. He lessens its attraction, perhaps, or He hinders the devil's tactics. You were thinking about going there, but then the phone rang. It was a Christian friend. Back on course. In a weak moment, you were just about to do it, When your child came into the room, you'd figured out a way for it to happen. And that's when you got sick and you had to stay home. I'm just saying none of these things are accidents. When it happens, it's God giving us a way out. It's his way of escape. You see, at times, God tempers the temptation. But at other times, he works in us to fortify our resolve to say no. He strengthens us for the struggle. Imagine the pressure on Joseph. Here was a young man full of vim and vigor. Mrs. Potiphar, she had to be a knockout. I mean, powerful people, they, they marry beautiful women. They don't marry ugly women, they marry beautiful women. Potiphar was a powerful Egyptian, and the powerful men, they marry pretty girls. And so you know that Mrs. Potiphar, she was a catch. And day after day, she started her flirting, making suggestive remarks, baiting Joseph to bed. Finally, she picked her moment. She waited until they were alone. Joseph was probably tired. Maybe his defenses were down. Who knows what she was wearing, if anything at all. And yet when she grabbed his robe, he left it in in her hand. And he fled. He ran. He got out of Dodge. And I have no doubt it was God who came to his rescue. In that very moment, God gave him some lucid thoughts, a lucid moment where he could think clearly. God gave him a surge of strength. God does that for his people in the temptation situation. It's his way of escape. You've just got to take it. There was a tourist out west who stopped at an Indian reservation where he was introduced to a Native American chief. This man was said to have a perfect memory. Tourist, of course, was skeptical. In fact, he tested the chief. He said, well, if you have such a perfect memory, tell me, what did you eat for breakfast on April the 2nd, 1954? Chief answered, eggs. 
Well, the skeptical tourist just scoffed at his answer. He said, well, sure, everybody eats eggs for breakfast. Tourist left unimpressed. Ten years later, this same tourist stopped at the same Indian reservation. And as he exited, exited the bus, guess who he saw? That's right, the chief with the perfect memory. The tourist slapped him on the back, and he jokingly said, How, chief? The Indian answered, Scrambled. <laughs> we, too, need to have a good memory. Let's learn from history, from the examples of God's people. Hey, it's good to take a stroll down memory lane once in a while. Beware of wicked wants and wicked worship and wicked works and wicked ways and wicked words. Let's remember, if it happened to the Hebrews, it can happen to us. Be humble. And let's continue in our faith.